0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Conservation Podcast here at the Pike County Conservation District. My name is Emily. I'm the communications coordinator at the district and I have two wonderful guests joining us today for this episode. here with Garrett and Logan from the PA Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, or DCNR. Do you guys want to tell me a little bit about your role at DCNR and what you do there?
1: Yeah, so I'm Logan. Uh, I'm a service forester with DCNR. Basically, the main responsibility with that is I go out and I talk to landowners about what they have, any issues they might be encountering. Uh, I just try to be a general educational uh, outlet for DCNR. Um, and then those, the questions that we get there is, it's pretty much anything from forestry to, you know, hey, my yard tree's not doing well, could you please come take a look at it and let me know what it has going on. My name's Garrett,
2: before I was a service forester, just like Logan, I spent about uh, nine years as a service forester here covering Monroe and Pike counties, doing the same stuff he was doing, a lot of public outreach, uh, private landowners, uh, conservation groups, schools, things like that. Currently, right now, I started here my first year as a fire forester. I cover fire suppression activities and education in Monroe County, working with uh, wildfire suppression, educating volunteer fire companies on wildfire suppression techniques, other trainings that fit in that fire suppression role, and also do a little bit of stuff here with uh, prescribed fire as well in the district how we uh, manage some of our state forest lands using prescribed fire
0: very cool so you had said you had been in the service force position for about nine years uh so logan how long have you been with dcnr and for both of you what drew you to work in this career
1: yeah so i've been with dcnr for a little over a year now uh, initially i was doing inventory and monitoring. Uh, It's part of our sustainable forestry initiative. So basically that's going out, uh, identifying points in the woods where we just collect data on what's out there, what's growing, the size of the trees, and basically composition of the forest uh, so that we can monitor changes over time and see if there are any dramatic shifts and then look for explanations for why those shifts are happening. Uh, And then I took up this service forester position about four months ago here. As far as what pulled me into that, You know, I was looking for something where I could always be trying to, you know, branch out and explore something new. And, you know, forestry is one of those things where, yeah, you learn about the trees, you learn about the soil, you learn about the economics of timber harvesting and soil compaction, insects, diseases. There's just always some new uh, thing that you can go into and really specialize in.
0: Yeah, that's a lot of different things that you get to do every day. No day is the same. So, Garrett, what drew you to your new position as a fire forester?
2: Well, after a while, we kind of need a little bit of change, want to explore some other avenues here. I always liked the fire program here. I liked kind of the, the spur of the moment, some of the variety the program offers. It's uh, Just a very unique program, kind of specialized. Uh, the folks that work with it here, it's not something that most people get to experience in their life. Uh, Provided me a lot of really neat opportunities. I've spent a lot of time traveling around the country working on wildfire suppression out of state. It's got me to, I think, I've fought fires in 10 or 12 different states, all the way from Texas, Georgia, to the the Great Lakes states, Colorado, California, Montana, you name it. I covered a lot of ground. I saw a lot of cool stuff and saw a lot of uh, neat places that most people don't get a chance to see. Plus, you get to give back a little bit. I'm a lifelong resident of Monterey County. My families grew up there for, I mean, generations. It's kind of cool to get something back, and it's a kind of an interesting feel, and I just enjoy it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we get to work a lot with TCNR here at the Conservation Districts through the Pike Wayne Conservation Partnership. How do you guys work with other conservation districts and with some other partners in the community?
2: Well, we do, do a lot with education, sharing resources, a lot of the conservation organizations can be, can be short-staffed, especially a lot of the times we have a lot of seasonal employees and things where it's kind of hard to get some staffing to help us do some projects. We lend some hands with some of that stuff. Uh, as far as, I'll start with the fire collaboration. Fire's a pretty dynamic environment. It's very easy to get shorter resources and we do a lot of uh, trading with resources for wildfire preve- or suppression and also for prescribed fire. Uh, work really closely with National Park Service here at the Little Water Gap, Natural Recreation Area. They help us out with a lot of wildfires, prescribed fire and we try to help them out as much as possible ourselves. Uh, sometimes we get involved with Fish and Wildlife, some of their uh, refuges they have in wildfire suppression and uh, Nature Conservancy, Pennsylvania Game Commission also work with those folks quite often as well. So it's kind of neat to be able to work with different agencies, uh, share resources, get a lot of training one of the really nice things is to work with different people is you pick up a lot of different techniques and ideas that maybe you haven't thought of in your group, your organization really gives you a lot of, uh, a lot of good things to, to, to look to improve your organization, you pick up a lot of very good things. As far as the more the, the traditional like, forestry aspect, managing your timber, uh, with the service forestry role, you do work with a lot of different organizations. Probably the one I work with the most is Natural Resource Conservation Service, NRCS. They're part of the U.S. Department of Ag, and they have a lot of cost-share programs for landowners to manage their woodlands for t- timber, for water resources, for wildlife. So I spent a lot of time working with them and helping them administer the programs. Uh, the various conservation groups worked with Lackawack Conservancy a bunch, Pike County Conservation District, Monroe County Conservation District, doing all kinds of s- school programs, activities, summer camps, those sort of things. Uh, spent a lot of time doing that sort of thing pretty heavy in the school program, educations as well. A lot of teachers have like a forestry or environmental class, and we do a lot of, in the classroom, training with that, kind of showing the students what we do as a a career. Uh, Bureau of Forestry manages 2.2 million acres, and we have tons of different ecosystems we manage, tons of different roles and jobs we have. So a lot of times, students looking to get into conservation. They really don't know what kind of jobs are out there. And kind of go there and kind of show them, hey, you like doing this kind of stuff. There could be a job in it for you. Kind of give them a little bit of an idea of who we are, what we do. That's pretty important.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So you both work with and learn from a lot of different partners in the field and also get to travel to lots of different places in the area. So have you come across any really cool forestry or ecology facts? Do you have a favorite fact?
1: yeah so one of my favorite things as far as Pennsylvania forestry goes is just the amount of biodiversity that you can find out there um, we have forests you can walk through you can find 30 40 different species of trees alone without you know looking down below eye level um, whereas you know if you go out to the west side of the country you can go out there and you're like well that forest over there that's Douglas fir and that one you know um, and just having that level where it's, you know, it's that diverse, there's that much information packed into one small space. I just think that's fascinating.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. One
1: of the things about Pennsylvania ecology here in forestry is
2: the kind of forest we think we're out here used to seeing out here, growing up our whole lives, looking at is actually not a forest community we really had historically in Pennsylvania. Uh, we never really had these forests that are so heavily dominated with oak and hickory species. A lot of it's just a result of past land use most people don't realize it, but almost all of Pennsylvania has been clear-cut a number of times. it been the first European settlers in probably 1920-ish, 1940, depending where you are in the state. So the forest we have here, mixed with those this, this cutting cycles and all the wildfires we had, actually really made this oak-hickory forest that we had, did not have. If you would have went back to, say, 1700 or before that, our forests had a lot more uh, late-season spe- species, which more of the white pine, hemlock... Beach, sugar maple, things like that, that can really tolerate a lot of shade, more of the longer-lived species. So this oak-hickory forest, that we think, is a normal part of Pennsylvania. Really hasn't existed within uh, any time out, of, any time more than 100 years ago. You really want to saw these kind of forests, so they're pretty much new. Uh, we're trying to manage forestry for something that's not really a natural part of the landscape. It's something we created using past land uses with clear cutting and fire. So we're trying to really manage for a lot of things that maybe Mother Nature doesn't want to do all the time, historically.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, and I don't think it really gets talked about very much how the forests we see today are so much different in Pennsylvania than in the past, and it's difficult to think about it and visualize it because it's been like this for about a century. Nobody has really experienced that prior.
2: Yeah, forestry in Pennsylvania, or really should say North America, is a pretty new science and field. Uh, Europe, they, they can track some of these, these histories from these forest stands back hundreds and hundreds of years. Here, we really haven't really been really trying to successfully regenerate our forests and really take care of them. Uh, since, I mean, in the last 80, 100 years, probably we haven't really, really cared about what's going to happen to the forest. Uh, a lot of that really kind of showed up around the uh, Great Depression, CCC errors. Uh, there's a real concern we were going to run out of wood products. That was a big concern. Everything was made of wood back then. Uh, houses, people used it a lot of water for fuel, shipping, all that kind of stuff. We didn't have as much reliance on Uh, plastics, steels, engineered materials. There's a real concern we're going to run out of wood. So then we start to really look at the forest and say, hey, what can we do to manage these? What can we do to make them healthy? And also at that time we had a lot of issues with erosions, wildfire. People saw the issues with uh, water quality. So a lot of that brought on even our agency, which really got started, which really started as a fire prevention agency, really is what, what we started as. And then we really started to morph more into this forest management agency as time went on
0: yeah so northeast pa in particular has a lot of unique geography and topographic features because of the recent glaciation that we had just ending about 10,000 years ago so how has that affected our forests and what we see today compared to some other areas
1: yeah so in this area um really if you look at kind of the soil composition, it's pretty different from, say, the center of the state where, you know, you have big wide valleys and, uh, you know, perfect places for farmers and fields out that way, whereas here you have rock. Um, rock, you know, it kind of gets a bad name in a lot of way, but it's, it's what's here, it's what we have, um, and so you end up with these... Uh, much smaller hills than you would see in other parts of the state and it kind of creates these neat little stands that are maybe a little more isolated than you would see in different areas kind of going through the state uh, in my inventory position this last year I think you know I didn't really see much American chestnut but here there are just little pockets of it all over the place and whether that's the nature of those small valleys, where you know maybe it was a little protected, it didn't get the fungal blight that other areas did, and they were just able to survive. Or you know whatever is causing that, uh, you end up seeing just pockets of very different things within one mile of each other. Whereas in other parts of the state, it's kind of it's a little more homogeneous as you move around. All right. Yeah, and really. Add to what Logan said. There
2: is I've traveled to I think it's forty two or forty three different states. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that Northeast Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania as a whole is probably one of the most diverse diverse ecological sites that I've saw in the United States. It's uh, pretty incredible. Like especially here, you look at the, the, the glaciers and a lot of the other land influences we have. Eastern side of the, of the state here we have Delaware Delaware River. We have a lot of those alluvial plains there. Really good high quality soils. We get to the glaciated areas that the glacier either, A, scraped all the soil off, left a rock, uh, left little pocket wetlands all over the place, which Pike County is just full of swamps that are that are relics of this where the glaciers stopped. Uh, where the glaciers did stop some of them, we have just big pockets of this fine sand and gravel where you can just dig for 30, 40 feet sometimes, just have this small little light sand and cobblestone, uh, which makes a lot of different uh, vegetation types that want to grow there. Some places you can go and have Really nice black cherry, sugar maple, red oak, and you can go a quarter mile away and just have a dry, barren scrub oak, white oak, black oak, chestnut kind of dry ridge. Uh, the, the, the Pocono Plateau comes down to, there's a lot of different geological functions or formations we have here. we ridge and in valleys as well. So we have a, lot, a big melting pot of, of at least three, four different land uh, categorizations, different past geological histories, and it creates a very diverse ecosystem, uh, can change very rapidly.
0: Yeah, I'm sure anyone who has tried to plant a garden or some trees here knows how rocky the soil can be. Um, And we see wetlands all over northeast PA and in Pike County especially. So we can definitely see how our forests have been shaped by that. How do our forests help to protect our drinking water? We know that planting riparian buffers along rivers and streams are good for filtering the water quality. Uh, why is that important?
2: I think one of the most important things, well, it really is one of the most important things with forests and soils, are they store a tremendous amount of water. Uh, I'm sure, if anyone's ever took a bucket of water, say you say you wash your vehicle, you want to dump it out in your yard, or something like that, you might see the water just kind of pool a little bit. takes a while for it to infiltrate. You can go to most of these forest soils; you could dump three, four hundred gallons of water, and most, most of the time, it's just going to sink right in, infiltrate into the ground. The uh, the organic matter, it's on top of the soil, the leaves, the duff, the breaking down, organic material is turning into soil, store a ton of water, which is really important, reduces, reduces flooding, and majority of the folks in northeast Pennsylvania get their water from wells. That water, rain, snow melts, seeps, stored in the soil, seeps down through, replenishes their aquifers, It's used for drinking. Uh, forest is really good at filtering that water too, so it becomes pure water when you want to pull it out of, your, out of your well at home other thing is that water stored in the soil and slowly leaches out in our streams uh, that's what is the, creates really high quality cold water fisheries we have our only our, our, native trout is the, is the brook trout to really support a lot of those native brook trout streams we have and then also support more of the wild brown trout that we do have as well which are really dependent on those, those cold waters and again if you want to go towards more down down the watershed too you start to get this in this larger municipalities things like Bethlehem, Allentown, Philadelphia, uh, New York City, they all get their water, their water from, from, from aquifers, from rivers. They all start up here in the mountains. Pike County is, the, is the, really the, the home of a lot of their water systems. And I mean, we don't, if you don't have the water stored here, where are you gonna get water come August, September, when you have those really dry spells?
0: Right, so our forests are really important. For hanging on to that water and preventing flooding, but also keeping it for future use, but also filtering it and shading those water systems like our streams and rivers to keep those cold habitats for the brook trout in place.
2: Correct, yeah, the forest buffers are really good. That's really the last line of filtration that the water's gonna go through. If you have any kind of storm flow that comes off driveways, roads, parking lots, before it runs into a stream, then get one little last chance to get it filtered out before it gets to the stream. Some of the larger particles, soils, uh, sediments filter out some of that clays, the clays, smaller particles get caught as well. It's really the last line of the fence where that, that material and nutrients makes it into the water system itself. And again, it's just having that tree cover, the leaf, can- leaf canopy cover on the stream is really important in the summertime when you get these hot conditions. Uh, those streams were exposed to the direct sunlight, we lose a lot of our uh, cold weather fisheries that we do have.
0: And our forests, how much of a Risk are we at in our area for forest fires? We know that we've seen them a lot on the west coast, and last year up in Canada we had a lot of smoke coming down this way from their forest fires. Forest
2: fires are always going to be a risk in Pennsylvania uh, for the foreseeable future, and probably probably forever for that matter. Uh, we definitely are seeing an increase an increase of fires for a couple different reasons. We do or do we are into a period of a little bit different different climate. Uh, the last five, six years, we've been seeing some, some longer periods of, of prolonged dryness. The last two summers we had uh, some small droughts, a little bit more intense fire behavior in the late spring, the summer that we usually see. And one of the big things with increasing fires is the amount of people we have that are utilizing the forest and making their homes here in northeast PA. Most of our fires in Pennsylvania, over 99% of the fires are caused as the result of human activity. And most of that here is is things like along the lines of debris debris burning and equipment use. So the more people you have moving moving out here, more people that like could possibly uh burning brush, burning other debris around their houses, the more those occurrences you have, the more chance that you have having those wildfires that wildfires, having more wildfires that could potentially impact more people, uh loss of life, loss of homes and property is just gonna keep increasing.
0: Sure. Is there anything that we could do on a community level to help prevent forest fires in our area?
2: Uh, Community-wise, probably, is, is, is education. Uh, if, you're, if you're going to do yard cleanups, burn leaves, other kinds of debris, things like that, is pick your days you're going to burn them. Uh, that 60-degree day, uh, middle of April, where you have really low humidities, 15%, 20 30%, that's not the day you want to be burning things outside. Sure. Wake things... Green up after a rain or during a rain, if you can, uh, less likely a fire is going to escape containment and go into become a become a wildfire at that point. Uh, if you're going to do any kind of outdoor burning. Make sure it's in areas that's that's free of fuels that can potentially uh, carry the fire into, in, into the wild environment. Uh, place where you have green yards after it rains. Use hoses, things like that. Watch the weather is, is a big one. I think it's just a lot of two, which is education and just. People really don't think a lot of times that a small little can just be burning a bag of trash in, in a burning barrel in your backyard. One or two little embers can go I mean hundreds of yards sometimes in the right conditions and land. One little ember starts, starts a fire and just really gets out of hand pretty quickly.
0: Sure, yeah. So even if you're just burning a little bit, you want to take the same precautions and make sure that your fire is contained and that you're burning on the right day with yep. the right conditions. And
2: definitely, definitely be cognizant of your fire activity. You, I, Best to get a lot of fire if people were out, were out burning they went in the house with dad to get lunch something like that chase the kids around and they come back five minutes later and, and the woods is on fire right. so just make sure things are, things are fully out when you leave them or if you have to step away make sure there's a competent adult there that can monitor the situation
0: sure definitely good advice and um, besides forest fires one of the other threats that we've got coming from our forests in this area that people are pretty familiar with are ticks and the lyme disease that they carry. So how do our forests kind of shape why we have such a greater tick and Lyme disease abundance here than in other areas? I know that our deer abundance is pretty high and that there's been some studies that some vegetation hold higher tick populations. So is there anything that would make it why we have higher instances of Lyme disease here than in other places in the country?
2: Well, I know that there's there's research showing that uh, things species such as barberry will, uh, is more of a conducive environment for ticks to go through the life cycle. Uh, the temperatures are more are more conducive to them going through their, their degree days to, to grow. Humidities are, are correct. Temperatures, light, uh, a lot of small mammals in there as well for food and also hiding from other predators. And of course, when you go through one or two more cycles of ticks in it, say a one or two year time frame, you start exponentially multiplying. Say 2 makes 4, 4 makes 12, 12 makes 100. It kind of starts really building on that aspect right there. Uh, I know the whole wine disease issue is really heavily affects a lot of our staff and a lot of the folks that I've, I, I work with and know that spend time I mean, recreating. It can be hiking, hunting, you name it. Ticks are always, always out there on everybody's mind. People that I know that are foresters that work out in the field, uh, majority of them have had issues with tick-borne illnesses in the, in the past, and it's expect to have again.
0: Sure. Is there anything that you or some of your coworkers do when you go out in the field to prevent tick exposure?
2: Uh, definitely one of the big ones is a lot of us treat our pants with permethrin. Uh, it's, it's a big one. Uh, just really trying to be vigilant a lot of times. Some of our folks will uh, wrap tape around the bottom of their pants, their cuffs, their boots, things like that, to prevent them from crawling up, in, up inside. One thing that really helps too is make sure your shirts are tucked in. A lot of times the ticks will crawl up, crawl up your pants, and they're able to crawl up underneath your shirt. Any, any type of thing you can avoid to prevent them from getting underneath your clothing definitely helps. And one thing I do when I go home is, especially in the summertime when I'm out, is one of the first things I do when I get home a lot of times is, to, is, is take a shower. It's one of the main things. As soon as you can find those ticks and get them off, uh, the better. Right. And it's, honestly, it's not uncommon to to not be in the woods for two or three days and get in your truck and all of a sudden you feel a crawl all across your arm. They do travel very well. They are persistent, you get them in vehicles, your office, your home. So one of the big things is just trying to limit how far they can actually get.
0: Sure. So along with ticks, one of the other pests that we've got right now in our forests is beech leaf disease, which is uh, more of a newly emerging disease in our area, I think, right?
1: Yeah, so beech leaf disease kind of showed up in Ohio in 2012. Uh, a lot of our communities here are starting to see it, especially if they have forests that are primarily composed of beech trees. Um, this is kind of a, a good moment to highlight the importance of biodiversity in our forests, uh, because when you have uh, one kind of tree, one problem can affect all of them. And where you get that concentration of beech leaf disease starting, it's really easy for it to spread to the neighbors right next to that tree, and it just kind of exponentially expands just like that. Uh, Areas where I've been at least, where I've seen our American beech trees just out in the forest and they're not the primary component, there is almost no or no beech leaf disease present. Um, Pretty much it's a disease spread by nematodes right now, Uh, and they're still doing a lot of research into it. I know that down in, I think it's Noldy Forest down near Harrisburg, or uh, sorry, by Reading, they're doing some research now trying to figure out some ways that they can treat it, but it's all still very preliminary, and we haven't figured out any kind of permanent treatment.
0: Okay. Could you clarify what a nematode is?
1: Yeah, so a nematode is uh, basically a, Something on the bacteria level, 100 microns long, you're talking less than a hundredth of an inch in length, much, much less than that in width. Um, You're talking about something that, you know, you might have it on your hands, you might not. uh, Pretty much without chemical treatment, it's pretty hard to, you know, wash equipment and be sure it's not there.
0: Sure. So we talked about Lyme disease, beech leaf disease, and wildfires, do you see one big threat facing Pike County's forests that you would say like we should be the most concerned about in our area?
2: I, th- I think probably the there's probably two things I'd say that are really big threats. One of the ones uh, is pr- probably the most noticeable. People is a lot of development we're having. Uh, our forests, as far as trying to really manage them, it's really becoming hard to do just for the fact that how subdivided and how much of our forest is getting broken up. Uh, it's easy to I shouldn't say it's easy. There's a lot more options to manage a forest that maybe is 150, 200 acres in size. Just use, just using those, n- those numbers, uh, so you start breaking that down to smaller parcels, to two, three, four acre lots, if not smaller. You lose a lot of connectivity to really manage for a lot of our species that use larger, larger territories. A deer you use a whole uh, range is over a mile and a half. Bear, I think it's 20 miles. So you're trying to manage for a species that moves around the landscape like that. How do you manage for a species that does that if you can only control maybe two or three acres, whatever happens in that? It makes it very, very hard to manage for the species that use those larger territories. Uh, they have to be mammals, things like other, other bird species, grouse, turkeys. All that stuff uses different home ranges, different, different forest habitats throughout the year. And it's really hard to uh, manage for those species. It's, a lot of hard, it's hard for those species to stay in the landscape that are, I mean, have low reproductivity. Using examples, turtles. How far does a turtle really go? Turtles have really hard issues with roads, things like that. So you start breaking this landscape. So a lot of those animals that are slow moving, aren't very mobile, have low re- or reproductive rates, so it's really hard to manage for in these smaller smaller parcels. Added to, this, to, to that issue is also the issues we have with deer. Deer is probably the, the if not one, number one, but probably the second biggest issue in Pennsylvania high deer numbers are really impacting our forests. You go to a lot of areas, uh, especially around the developed tracks where you cannot find uh, any kind of regeneration. And when I uh, say regeneration, I mean uh, tree seedlings. If you don't have seedlings to replace trees that say die in a forest fire, ice storm, wind damage, what's going to replace them? The answer usually is then, is invasive species. You have a lot of things, Japanese barberry, knotweed, mile a minute, you name it, the list goes on and on. These invasives are starting to replace a lot of our natives and really starting to overtake our forests. So I'd say the, the biggest concern is that uh, forest fragmentation with, with, the, with, with increased development and then uh, the deer working in conjunction with invasive species is the second biggest one.
0: Sure, and so forest fragmentation like you had touched on really leads into habitat fragmentation for our wildlife and so if they're not able to cross roads or housing developments that can lead to things like inbreeding when they're not able to have a gene flow going across populations and can have uh, tumbling effects into things like uh, their immune systems. And because if you have inbreeding in a population, it's difficult to have an immunity if there is a disease or something that pops up. And so it's important to have gene flow across populations so that you can have uh, adaptations that might arise for things like resistance to a disease, so that if something were to hit a population, it wouldn't knock out the whole population.
2: Exactly. Like fragmented populations of any kind of species are very vulnerable. Uh, any, 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 anything, any kind of disease, hard winters, droughts like that, uh, population can be severely impacted and wiped out pretty quickly. As good examples, you start looking at a lot of the western states, a lot of the elk and mule deer that are migratory. They live in the mountains in the, in, in the spring, summer, and early fall. As soon as it gets snow, they move out of the mountains. And a lot of these the, the, the wintering grounds are, are getting built on. Uh, there's highways and things like that, and towns that are really starting to cut off the wintering wintering grounds, and they can't winter successfully. Uh, population really can't survive. And these populations that are highly migratory just just are making it. They're starting to dwindle.
0: Right. And so our deer population around here, which you had mentioned, is uh, really kind of growing out of control and. I think that part of the reason it's so bad around here is because they've lost all their natural predators, right? So predators of white-tailed deer used to be mountain lions and wolves and other large carnivores that we had in this area that have been extirpated.
2: Yeah, besides really besides people hunting and in, in car accidents, there's really not much really preys on deer besides uh, coyotes definitely prey on deer especially especially fawns and if you get uh, deep snow where deer aren't as mobile could uh, have a pretty good advantage and black bear believe it or not will actually uh, prey on the fawns as well but initially not having that link there with the, the more the apex predators which we used to have the, the, the gray wolf and also uh, the mountain lion like that's so two big natural predators that aren't really there and I mean part of what we have around here is we have a lot of people that feed wildlife too they concentrate deer in higher numbers like that uh, you know, when it's hunting season, a little bit of pressure in the woods, they go to these safe refu- refuges, and they stay there, and then they come out, and they I mean, really start impacting a lot of our forests.
0: Sure. Logan, do you see any big threats facing our Pike County forests?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, right now it's kind of the, the death by a thousand cuts, right? You've sure. got all these small stressors that are kind of adding up. You have disease, invasives, displacement, fragmentation, um... And then you know, like we have foresters, loggers, people in the industry trying to do you know scientifically backed healthy forestry to get things where we want them, and then well well intentioned people coming into the forest and interfering with those operations, trying to you know with the best of intentions uh, stop those operations from going on. Um, and sure, yeah, I understand that cutting down a 100-year-old tree is hard for some people to see. Uh, but realistically, that tree is its hitting a point of decline. It's going to get hit by invasives, and we can either do that harvest at a point when regeneration is optimal, and there's a good chance we're going to get those oak trees to grow up, or we don't. And that old tree dies, and there's nothing to take its place except that Japanese knotweed we, we talked about um so really you know that full circle that kind of comes back to the uh service forester position of public outreach and education and try and say you know there's a time and a place for it and, and we do the best that we can to uh, make things healthy
2: yeah I have one more thing to that Logie too you mentioned about i mean different i mean, I mean forest management which involves usually some kind of cutting prescribed fire something like that to really change the forest composition. one thing people don't realize is that every species has a niche, has a little little habitat, a little habitat age class where it wants to live at a certain point in its time or for its whole lifetime. A lot of our species that have these utilize these young forests which we call the early sectional species things like grouse, woodcock, goldwing warblers, uh, cottontail rabbits, those sort of species need to have that young forest. That young forest is usually defined as anything over under 25 years or so, generally speaking, and without having this younger forests, we lose a lot of this species. We we'll hear people talk about all the time. spent spend a lot of time in service forest We're working with a lot of these hunting clubs up here that have been here for 125, 140 years, some of the older clubs here. And people that are, I mean, this, this point in their life now are 60, 70, 80 years old, can tell you stories about how they used to go out with their dog, and they could flush 50, 60 grouse in an afternoon. Now a good guy might go out with his, his, his pointer, and he might find one or two grouse, that's it, With a whole day. We can't get the species back unless we have a younger forest where they can actually survive. So we need to have that mixed age class forest on on the environment. We're spending a lot of time trying to do that on state forest here. We're trying to, what we call, balance for age classes. We're trying to get all age classes of forest, say anything from year zero, where we're just cut right now recently, all the way to stuff that we're going to let as long-term reserves that might be allowed to get 100, 150, 200 years, or maybe not get touched at all. So it's really good to have the different age class forests in the landscape, uh, because a lot of species really depend on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Logan, you had mentioned when you had said that we're kind of facing a death by a 1,000 cuts, a lot of different uh, threats piling up and making it difficult for species to survive that there's a lot of scientific research going on that is backing DCNR policies and procedures. So are there any new up-and-coming strategies that you guys are starting to use at DCNR or um, will be using soon in the future that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, so kind of to start and put that in perspective, um, if you think of the forest kind of in agricultural terms, you know, your oak trees might take 80 to 90 years to grow up from seedling to that full-sized adult before it starts going into decline. Um, And to look at things a little differently, if you were to talk to a farmer who grows corn, you know, 40 years of harvesting corn, you get a lot of experience, you know, within a year or two, whether something's working or you have consequences. Uh, Forestry, you know, you could work for 30, 40 years and you haven't seen you know, the second, third generational consequences of what you're doing. Um, So honestly, everything within the last 100 years is still, you know, in perspective, new in some ways. Um, We have a good idea of what is causing regeneration or what is impeding regeneration, uh, but as far as what might have negative effects on, you know, genetic composition or wood quality in 80 years, you know, a lot of the results of, new stuff that we're doing kind of has yet to be seen Um, that being said we do have a bunch of different things that we're doing now that you know 100 years ago they just weren't common practice Uh, we're doing shelter wood cuts which is where when regeneration is good we'll harvest a majority of the trees but leaving some spaced out and what that does is it allows uh, regeneration in the understory that likes to grow in the shade to kind of become established before we do anything else. Uh, in areas where we don't want, say, uh, birch or beech to move in, and we want oak to do that, we'll do that shelter wood oak because what oak will do is it grows down before it grows up. It gets a really established uh, taproot and root system going because historically it is adapted for fire. and. You know, if it was competing with birch and beech and everything else, and birch and beech grew over top of it, and we suppressed that fire, then the birch and beech would just continue to grow up, the oak would fall behind, and it just wouldn't keep up competitively speaking. Uh, We're also doing fencing, which, you know, 30 years ago, if you didn't do fencing, you just had dirt. That's what you were growing there. That's, That's the truth of the matter. Um, some areas we're finding that if we do a large enough harvest, there's simply too much there for the deer to just devastate it. Um, So, you know, maybe doing a larger harvest is, you know, beneficial in the sense that you don't have to put in a fence in those areas. Uh, There are some really great photos out there showing, you know, we put in a fence, we waited five years, we came back, look at the left side of the fence versus the right side of the fence. Right side of the fence will have... 12-foot-tall saplings in there, and everything's looking great. Left side, you've got a handful of ferns and just about nothing else. Um, There are all sorts of different things going on right now. Uh, Always new studies coming out, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where a new study comes out, and you have to look at it, and you take the information for what's there, but you also have to be critical of it because you don't know what the long-term consequences are yet.
2: Yeah, add to that, we, we do put a considerable amount of time and, and, and time and money into uh, trying to trying to, trying to do, do research, trying to uh, figure out new treatments, uh, working with our partners to try to figure out what's the best route moving forward for, for, for forestry in general in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's always new things on the horizon. Three, four years ago, beech leaf disease was something we didn't think about. We're doing, doing research, trying to work and try to see if there's any way, ways we can deal with that. we were doing uh, parasitoid releases for ML dashboard, trying to th- uh, work on some issues with that, Hemlock diligent, working on all kinds of different projects kind of figure out how to deal with all these invasives that are coming and just figure out forestry in general. Again, forestry is ever-evolving, ever-changing, it's not stagnant. Logan made a good point, like, you can do a lot of rotations of corn and soybeans, try to figure out new hybrids, figure out what works, select for genetic diversity you would like to have. We can't do that in forestry. A lot of uh, oak species you take 25, 30 years for you to produce an acorn. So we're talking about stuff on the large scale, which takes a lot of time to we really work through to figure out what works, what doesn't work. And what works here to grow, say to grow oak in Pike County, doesn't work out in Center County. It just doesn't work. Soil's a little bit different, trees a little bit different. A little differently. Our shelter, what we do out here, we try to manage the light to grow oak seedlings. Uh, we level a few more trees, a few less trees per acre than they do out in the central part of the state. It's just what works here, and a lot of that here is is, is trial and error. You, t- you take research, you take take the guidance from from the experts, and you see if it works, if it doesn't work. If you got to tweak it a little bit, uh, again, just based on local factors is a big thing, and you will have failures. Sure, you will have failures, but you hope your successes uh, out- outweigh the failures, and. You can do everything right. You can do a shelter wood sequence. You can have really good regeneration. You uh, harvest the first entry into the stand really good. Don't do a lot of residual damage to the the soils, to the trees that are there. You can have drought for two or three years. You can have heavy defoliations of of natives or or invasive insects. Uh, Other things like that happen and it might turn to the birch stand. That's what happens sometimes. Mother nature, only thing you can say that she's gonna do she's probably going to surprise you when you're least expecting it yeah so there's there's a lot of variabilities we have here in forestry where we try to use the best science available uh, and try to put that into our management going forward and i mean your forestry we manage 2.2 million acres of state forest land across pennsylvania uh we are certified by fsc which is a uh, forest stewardship council and they're a third party accreditation service that we use to uh, they certify that our forests are being managed and harvested sustainably and our wood products that are harvested here carry the FSC logo as
0: well. That's great. And so DCNR manages 2.2 million acres, which is just an unimaginable amount, but a lot of our land here in Pennsylvania is privately owned and managed, right? So do you have any practices that private landers might be able to do on their properties to help with forest management and the health of our Pennsylvania forests?
1: Uh, yeah, so probably the easiest answer for that is to try to reach out to the local DCNR mm-hmm. service forester, which is a totally self-serving statement. and I'm okay with that. Uh, but I mean, seriously, it's free. It's, we're not going to charge you for it. It might take us a couple weeks or a month or two to get out there. That's that's the reality. Uh, but we're free to talk to, and we'll come out and we'll give you opinions. And we have to be careful that we're not crossing any lines and taking work from private sector. But What every landowner has is so unique that trying to give blanket statements from the comfort of my chair right now is uh, dangerous. I'll put it that way.
0: Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. But that's a great resource. So how would someone find out how to contact the service forester for their area?
1: Yeah, so uh, DCNR's website, uh, if you go, I think if you just type in DCNR service forester, you'll find a list of service foresters by county uh where to or who to reach out to with what email or what phone number Um, that's probably the easiest way Uh, just kind of to go a step beyond that uh we recommend that everyone has a forward stewardship plan which is you know five years ten years out what you want to do on what year and it's it kind of provides you with that map of how to get to where you want your forest to be
2: I know one thing I was always asked to forest foresters, what can I do here, what should I do? And that's a, it's a very hard question to answer. I always would ask the landowner then say, how do you use your forest? How do you foresee using your forest? And what do you foresee doing with it in the future? Uh, sometimes it sounds a little, a little cruel, but uh, a lot of our landowners, people at the time, they have to have some land, some free time, usually a little bit, a little bit older in life. And Talking back to forestry, forestry. I mean, a lot of our forest really becomes maturity. You're talking 80, 100, 120 years, if not more than that, for some of the species, is you're planning out for a pretty large planting cycle. What you do today is going to have implications 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. And it's not like it's not like a cornfield where you just doesn't work one year, you can try a different hybrid the next year, or try planting corn somewhere else, plant soybeans there instead. If you go and really jump into something, not really investigate it, don't really want to, I just say don't really, not if you don't want to, but if you just kind of jump into something kind of ha- ha- haphazardly, you can really change how you're going to use your forest and how you're going to be able to manage that going forward. It's really easy to do a lot of damage to your forest. It's really hard to correct that damage and bring it back to a state that you'd like to see it at. So a lot of times it's better, better to go slow to really think what you want, want to see the forest. Uh, and there's, again, the opportunity costs everything. If, if I mean, if you own 30, 40 acres, you want to make some uh, early exceptional habitat. You want to some possibly some grouse, turkeys, hold some more game like that. You're probably going to lose some of the aesthetic value you had of the land before. It's it's always it's always a, it's a always a given give and take on forest management. It's really good to have a plan how you want to use your forest. Maybe not just I mean six months down the road, but also three, four, six, eight, ten years, because what you do today is really going to shape the way your forest develops.
0: Sure, and so having a uh, I mean, a service forester come out to your property is a great way to make one of those plans and to have an idea for how your forest is going to look going into the future.
2: It's a great it's a great place to start the conversation. There's landowners here Service Forester we've worked with. There's records in our office going back 50, 60 years, if not longer. Uh, start the relationship. Service Forester, we like going out, like meeting people, talking to people, it's always cool to see different properties and, and, and meet new folks. Uh, more than happy to come out there if you have... You know, and a half acre you want to talk about trees in your yard that are, that, are, that are declining in health all the way up to if you have a couple hundred acres uh, to work with want to do some larger projects all that stuff fits in our wheelhouse and we're more than happy to do that uh, schedule time go out there and meet and uh, see what you have uh, planned for your forest
0: i know a lot of people that contact us here at the conservation district work to help manage forest sustainably by planting native species on their property, but we always get the question of how to stop the deer from eating them when they're so young. Um, And so some people have a few hundred acres where they might be able to do deer exclosures with fencing, but people that only have an acre or less um, might just be looking for trees to plant in their yard that don't really have that capability. So do you have any recommendations for that?
2: Yeah, the deer issue is is really complex. Just, we'll start out with with with, with and working more around your house and things like that. Uh, there's two things you're gonna have an issue with, with deer plantings. A lot of times, is the deer gonna, the buck are gonna rub their antlers uh, at the end of usually the end of August, trying to get the velvet off and keep rubbing that through the rut. you so you have the deer damage done by rubbing antlers, and you also have the feeding damage as well. One thing you, know, you can really make your life easier if you get larger larger species. Say you want to plant a maple tree. One is an inch and a half, two inches in caliper. Uh, All you have to do at that point is protect the tree's bark from getting rubbed by the deer. Simple little tree guards you can pick up. There's some pretty good ones that are are black plastic, they're reusable, you can take them off and the tree gets bigger. And and they're uh, perforated so they get light to go through and they get air as well. Uh, Tree that inch and a half, two inch diameter in size is going to have its canopy above where deer can browse. So you're not going to worry about the deer browse issue. If you get smaller trees, you're going to have to either, A, build a a substantial fence around them so the deer can't get to browse them, or use uh, tree tubes as well, where you protect the trees growing up until they get large enough to stand on their own. Uh, That really makes it hard. Deer are are very ingenious in finding ways to eat things. Especially, too, uh, if you protect a tree up to, say, five, six foot in height, so the canopy's above the deer's browse height, and you get a foot and a half, two foot of snow, get a crust on it, what happens? The deer stands on top crust cross pretty soon, and now the deer can browse it again. So it's a really hard thing to, to fight against sometimes. And for larger forest landowners, uh, one of the big things you can't really stress enough is, is, is hunting deer. It's the big one. I don't think in a lot of these areas you can, you can hunt enough deer to really have a big impact. Uh, there's just so many around. But the less deer we have in the landscape, the healthier forest is going to be in general.
0: Right. Yeah, I know when people always ask me about the deer, I always say that they're very good at acclimating to whatever you throw at them, and if they're hungry enough, they'll eat anything. But definitely the tree tubes uh, are a way to try and protect those young trees until they're tall enough that they can't eat off the, the top of the browse there.
2: Exactly. Yeah, the deer the deer numbers we have here, the, the amount of deer we can carry on an acre is is a lot less than a lot of the numbers we have here. It's not uncommon to find places that probably have... 20, 30 deer per square mile, when our forest could probably support probably under under 15 or a dozen. So it, you can only really see the amount of deer da- the amount of damage deer can do, especially when you think of a deer can eat over five pounds of browse a day in the wintertime. It a, it's a big pile when you start taking little, little little buds and branch tips to make five pounds. Now think of that, a deer doing that all winter long, and now extrapolate that to 20, 30 deer. You can only really see the kind of damage they can do over the course of, of a few years.
0: Definitely. So we talked about a lot in the past, a little less than an hour. Is there anything else that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, so forestry is one of those things where it's uh, it's kind of the Alice in Wonderland, the Cheshire cat thing, you know? Like, well, what do you want to do with your forest? Well, I don't know. Then it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, unless you define what you want, what, do you, what you want it to look like, the function you want it to serve, um... It's just kind of, kind of do whatever it's going to do, um, and we can do our best to redirect that into a direction that we want it to go, uh, but it's not always going to go in our favor, um, and that kind of leads us into another direction where, you know, there's this growing idea that well, if I just Google enough, I'll find the answer, and that'll come up with something, and that results in decision paralysis. And well, that's a whole different problem because now you're deciding to do nothing. And if you want to do nothing, that's fine. And if you want to do something, that's fine too. But just know that at some point you either have to decide to do that thing, to change it towards the direction you want it to go, or you should make the decision to do nothing. And that should be your active decision. but pretending that there is going to be that magic answer out there somewhere, uh, I think we're just playing make believe at that point. Well, I have two things to add I'll build on to that a little bit. What Logan said, "Prize of Service
2: forest for nine years. The thing I've recommended the most to landowners, either wholly or in conjunction with uh, some more recommendations for their land, is treating the invasive species. That's a really big one. It's it's hard to go to any woodlot and not find something that's not native to be there. You go to." Any area that has a little bit better soil, a little bit more moist, uh, especially when you get down by a stream, you're going to find things, Japanese barberry, knotweed, mile a minute, multiflora rose, autumn olive, buckthorn, you name it. It's all out there. Uh, it's probably the best thing you can do as a landowner really to start is to get that stuff controlled. You do any kind, of, any kind of cutting, planting work. You're going to be fighting those species. So as soon as you can get those, those non-natives off the landscape, the better your forest is going to be and if you go out there and cut way too many of the red oaks that are out there you get some problems going forward with your forest but if you go with your property and wipe out every single japanese barberry plant that's out there you you hurt nothing you're gonna 100 have a chance at helping your forest that's probably the easiest thing landowners can do and it's one of those things you hear these stories of landowners that hey I used to walk down this path 15 20 years ago to go to the stream i can't even get down there it's a giant sea of barberry right now i don't go down there anymore it pokes in my pants and cuts myself if you can go out there you can knock that barberry back, uh, get reclaim your land, and get a chance to enjoy the stream. You can really see the, the fruits of your su- success. It might take, through a shelterwood process, 15, 20 years to get an acorn crop established where it becomes seedlings that are big enough and healthy enough to become a new forest for more cutting activities to follow. But you can go out there uh, with a backpack sprayer, herbicide. In the course of an afternoon, you can go out there and treat a couple acres of barberry, uh, dyes, uh, and you can, you can see the results you have. They're more immediate. And a lot of people like to have, everybody likes to have projects that you get instant gratification on it. Some of these farship practices take years to show, see the results. But if you can go out there and spend an afternoon, kill a bunch of barberry, you can see the results pretty darn quickly. And if you can start with easy projects, it seems like people kind of build more of a capacity to work on the larger things that take a little bit more time. They see results in their labor, they want to just jump in and tackle more. So definitely go out there and just make the blanket statement. It's just get those invasive species off of the landscape. Definitely help. Other thing I'll add, I'll throw a plug out for our state forest system. I said before we manage 2.2 million acres of state forest land. Uh, we have 20 different forest districts around the state. Right here locally, uh, Monroe and Pike County, we enc- encompasses the Delaware, Delaware Forest District, District 19. We have roughly 85,000 acres of public land. Uh, we can offer anything from hiking, backpack, motorized camping, uh, fishing, boating, snowmobiling, ATV riding, hunting, all that kind of stuff we have. Uh, Get out there, enjoy the forest. Uh, We can definitely be found online, our presence. Uh, Most of our kiosks we have, we have maps that you can pick up as well. Uh, If the forest doesn't say it's not open to a certain activity, it is. But most of our state forest here, 85,000 acres, is open to all recreation. That's that's permitted in state forests. So go out there, find a trailhead, go explore, and enjoy yourself.
0: Great, thank you. So, thank you both, Logan and Garrett, for talking with me today and for covering lots of different forestry topics. And thank you so much for coming.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Conservation Podcast here at Pike County Conservation District. If you enjoyed this episode and want to find more, you can find past episodes and new episodes. Our season two episodes will be released monthly starting January, 2024, on our website pikeconservation.org under the education tab or on Spotify. To stay in touch with us, And find out more about our upcoming events, newly released podcast episodes, and tips and tricks for conservation at home. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And sign up for our email monthly newsletter, which you can find the sign-up link at the bottom of our website, pikeconservation.org. Thanks for listening!